This probably won't surprise any of you who have known me for a while, but I am a big fan of ritual. I really love ritual, and I would be in the wrong profession if I didn't. I love bigger rituals like communion and baptism and weddings and foot washing. And I love smaller rituals like house blessings. That's why I've invited myself over to some of your new homes. House blessings and sendings and one of my favorites, it's a messy one, burning last year's Palm Sunday palms to make this year's Ash Wednesday ashes. That's one of my favorites. I love the most ordinary, even daily, teeny tiny rituals that quite fill our lives. And I will get to those teeny tiny ordinary daily, or at least one of them, in a minute. Sometimes we need more than words. Sometimes we need to taste the earthiness of bread and the pungency of wine or the deep sweetness of juice. Or we need to smell the burning of sage. Sometimes we need to feel the weight of hands laid on us or feel the care-filled arranging of an academic hood around our necks. Sometimes we need to see the fully present gaze of a beloved during the speaking of vows or hear the sound of dirt hitting a casket. Sometimes we need something that may include words, but far exceeds the limit of the spoken word. Sometimes we need more of our senses to be engaged more fully, to taste, to feel, to see, to sense. Sometimes we need to do or to have done to us. Sometimes we need a ritual. Rituals are powerful and important, and some life transitions can't quite be deemed properly undergone without one particularly those big life transitions where the personal or the professional transformation is so enormous that nothing short of a ritual will help to mediate our becoming a new thing. These rituals or these at these big life transitions we call rites of passage. And Thomas Driver wrote a book called Liberating Rites where he talks about rites of passage that are performed not simply to mark a transition, but to affect one. It's not just marking a transition, but it actually affects one. In other words, a graduation ceremony, which many of us have gone through, at least one, doesn't simply mark an academic and professional transition. It affects it. It makes it so. Prior to the ceremony, you're not fully graduated. fully completed your program. And following the ceremony with all of its rituals, its words, its actions, its special clothing, its pomp, all of it, you are, for the first time, actually graduated. For the first time, an actual graduate, newly conferred with whatever degree was conferred during the ceremony. So rites of passage do more than just mark a transition. They help affect them or make them so. So it is with a wedding. You're not married before you walk down the aisle, and you are afterwards. Even for one like me, who signed my civil paperwork before the ceremony, I was really married when I said those words in front of my community and God. That's when it happened. Or a last day of work retirement celebration, or an induction ceremony, or a baptism. And that's where we finally reach Jesus 
And because he is fully and utterly human, the same is true for him. Some life transitions are just too big. They need a ritual. (coughs) Jesus needed to be baptized, at least in part, and I don't think this is the whole thing, but at least in part, because he needed something more than simply waking up one morning and deciding, well, I suppose today is as good a day as any, and then after an unremarkable breakfast of olives and bread, I don't know what he would have eaten for breakfast, just walk out to the nearest hillside and start preaching to the sky and the stones. Could have taken a really long time for a person to find him there, much less a crowd. Especially, especially if he had wrestled at all with the tiniest bit of doubt about his own vocation, about his own sense of call. If he started to wonder if he was foolish talking to himself aloud on a hillside to the sky and the stones, and simply went back to furniture making alongside his dad, Joseph. But before I'm misunderstood, let me be clear. I don't think that Jesus' baptism was a publicity stunt in order to drum up a crowd. I think it was more than that. I think Jesus himself needed that experience of baptism. And this is one of the things I believe as an avowed lover of ritual and believer in the power of ritual. Jesus needed a good ritual to not just mark the transition into his public ministry, but to affect it. Our story from Matthew this morning detailed the dramatic baptism by an uncharacteristically demurring John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And that baptism, it marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as the anointed one as God's beloved, as the word incarnate. I'm not sure we can understate the importance of this initiating ritual for the life of Jesus. We don't know a single thing that he did in the intervening years. (laughs) In fact, we've just jumped ahead in our narrative lectionary close to 30 years, um, which we did a lot when we were in the First Testament, but we're not going to do it so much now that we're in the New Testament. The next several months are going to happen within just a few years. But here we've jumped 30 years. Jesus needed something big. A transformation is affected for Jesus through the ritual. He's not the same, I don't think, when he comes out of the river as he was when he went into it. Jesus' baptism was one of those big life transitions like a wedding or a graduation or becoming a citizen through a naturalization ceremony. It's one of those major rites of passage that happen along the human journey that most of us only experience a few of in our lifetime. This was a big one. But I do think that smaller rituals can also carry the same powerful potential for affecting a change. So not just marking a change, but actually affecting a change if only on a smaller scale. And here's that ordinary everyday example I promised you. My morning cup of coffee. I am an addict and therefore dependent on coffee's caffeine to get me through a headache-less day. But my coffee ritual is far more than just an infusion of caffeine into my body. The entire ritual does something much more powerful for me than that. It affects the transition in me. And I just did it again this morning. From hearing the rush of water from the faucet into my kettle to feeling the kettle grow blessedly heavy in my hands. 
the precursor to the coffee that's to come. The tantalizing whiff of coffee as I open up the lid on the jar and you get that first whiff. And then hearing that staccato sound of the metal spoon clanging against the glass jar as I'm scooping the beans. Then that delightful sound of bean tumbling against bean, tumbling against bean. (laughs) And then the whirring sound of the grinder, everything. The mouth-watering click of the kettle as it finally reaches 212 on the little digital scale. It's gotten to the right temperature. The sight of that perfect stream of water going in and I got a gooseneck kettle for myself recently and ooh, it's just a beautiful little stream right out that gooseneck. <laughs> then those miraculous first drips of the brown brewed beauty, the joyous aroma, I could keep going, the fervently anticipated release into a mug and then the sight of the steam and the way that it warms my hands and then at long last, the first luscious sip. Oh, the whole thing never ever fails to delight. There were actually a few years when I went off coffee and I made peppermint tea for myself every single morning. It's not as glorious, I will say, Um, but partly because I needed that. I needed that ritual. The whole glorious ritual for me is almost single-handedly responsible for readying me for the day, and this is not overstated. So as an addict, the headache is annoying if I you know, leave the house without having had my coffee or a very rare, sad day when I have no coffee at all. That almost never happens. But on those days when I walk out the door, maybe not having made my own, maybe I'm on my way to meet someone for coffee. I mean, the impounding headache is irritating, but what I miss most of all is that ritual. I miss the whole thing that doesn't just mark my transition from sleeping to waking, but it, it actually affects it. For some, it may be the shower, for others, the morning paper, a walk or a run, a meditation or prayer, feeding the cat or walking the dog. For many of us, the waking ritual involves a combination of these and other things. And for me, it is most foundationally the coffee. On the other side of that whole preparation and sipping ritual, I am readied, I am awake, when before I was not. So I do think it's true that ritual can become empty. I can hear some of you who maybe don't love ritual as much as I do thinking, ah, empty ritual. I think it can become empty, but I would assert that it becomes empty and that ritual at its essence is powerful from the big to the small in affecting change. I think that our experience, perhaps, of the power of ritual has more to do with how we go into it. Are we open and receptive to having a powerful experience? Have we heeded the call to repent and stepped into the river? Are we open to a powerful experience, to some sort of large or small transition affected in us? Or are we closed to it? Are we ambivalent? And it's not that we can't be surprised, because I think we can be surprised. We can expect something powerful and walk away disappointed. That happens. And we can expect nothing at all and walk away sort of shaken by an unexpected power we didn't know we were going to encounter. 
But more often than not, I would guess that our openness and receptivity is the greatest predictor of our experience. So then I wonder, how do we nurture our openness to the big and small life transitions of our lives? I'm thinking about a story I once read about a guy who was uh, going to paint his barn, and he went on a supply run, loaded up with all of his supplies, so two gallons of barn red paint, uh, an array of stirring sticks and paint brushes, a drop cloth under each arm, and he gets to the barn, and he tries to open the door, and he's having trouble because he's balancing all this stuff. It's getting tricky, uh, stuff that he didn't want to go to the hassle of setting down. And I think I remember this story because it is so relatable to me. I do it every time I come home with groceries. Uh, when I'm standing there with the key and all the stuff because I'm trying to carry it all in in one go and all the stuff that I carry into and out of the church inevitably when I come, the bags, all the stuff that I'm balancing. You know where the story is going, right? He ends up on his back with approximately two gallons worth of barn red paint spilled all over himself. The price one pays for stubbornly refusing to set something down and instead barreling forward. This story of the barn, it's literal, it's concrete, it's specific, but the invitation, I think, reaches far beyond the painting of a barn. I think about it in approaching the thresholds of our life. Whether it's one of those big life transitions or a smaller, more ordinary sort of transition, we often do well to set some things down. And I think this has something to do with how we open ourselves or nurture an openness in us for the power of ritual. Then, a bit lighter and freer and more balanced, our arms free of the loads they're carrying, we can cross through, and the stuff, the actual literal or metaphorical stuff that we leave on that side of the threshold, it's still there. We could still turn around and pick it up. So you don't need to be scared when we set it down that it's not going to be there. It's still there. But I find when I do this successfully, more often than not, I don't need it. I don't need the stuff that's on that side of the threshold. Most of it can stay right there where I left it. And I think this is another one of ritual's powerful gifts, the invitation to set down some of what we carry. And to not just say it, but to do something about it. To set down our expectations, our fears, or doubts, or rage or judgments and unforgiveness, whatever it is that is burdening us, to set it down and then to cross over the threshold that appears before us just a little bit lighter and freer and more able to be present to the challenges, the joys, and the invitations of the moments that we're going to encounter on the other side. And I can only assume it was this way for Jesus, too. I don't know what had accumulated for him. We don't know what had accumulated for him in those 30 years, during which we don't hear much about his life or what happened. We don't know what accumulated for him that he needed to set down on that side of the River Jordan. But I'm guessing most of it he realized he didn't need once he came out the other side. And he is, in fact, right after this, and we'll hear this next week for those of us gathered at camp, He is right after this, heading into the wilderness, a place to be stripped of stuff we don't need. It's hard to know if Jesus on the morning of his baptism was open to the ritual's power, if he was resistant to it, if he was ambivalent about it. 
But what is certain is that this rite of passage opened to him a whole new world. As Matthew puts it, when Jesus emerges from the water baptism, suddenly the heavens were opened to him. I loved as Amy had the kids up here just holding the hands up here. It's the stuff of imagination. The heavens were open to him. And I have long been captivated by this very poetic phrase. What does it mean? Suddenly the heavens were opened to him. What did Jesus see in that moment of emergence? What did he hear? What did he experience? What did he know for the first time? Did he see a vision of the mighty Roman Empire fallen? That's what I wonder. Did he see a vision of a string of empires? Roman, Mongol, Ottoman, Russian, British, American, each like a string of dominoes rising and falling in succession until they all laid flat before God. Did he see a vision of vines creeping up the crumbling walls of deserted prisons? Military bases, castles, and halls of injustice, vines growing up as the earth literally reclaimed all that had marred its surface, enslaving and terrorizing its people and all of creation. Is that what he saw? Suddenly the heavens were opened to him. I wonder what he saw or experienced or knew for the very first time. Fully and utterly human, Jesus needed a good ritual for his big life transition, and the impact is not to be understated. Jesus needed to be baptized because he needed something more, something not to just mark the start of his ministry, but to affect it. Mysteriously, the ritual of his baptism conferred on him a vision of the heavens broken open, something that might not have happened just over a regular morning breakfast when he said, I guess I'll start my ministry today. The visions of the heavens opened up to him in this ritual and a sense of the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And then the voice that emerged, that he experienced a sense of God's anointing him, or at least naming, claiming him as beloved. This is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. I think I was partly drawn to the power of the ritual this morning because we're at the start of a new year. I don't really do New Year's resolutions. Maybe some of you do. Um, But it does seem an apt time to do some reflection and set intentions, perhaps. And so as we step into this new year, I wonder if there's some threshold before you now, or one that you anticipate coming down the road sometime this year. And what things are you carrying that you might want to or need to set down in order to cross that threshold more fully? And might you be invited to ritual, whether big or small, not just to mark a transition in your life, but to help affect it? We are about to step into that renewal of baptismal commitment that I mentioned when we began worship. It's a new practice to us 
And it's one that a lot of denominations do, but I think a really unique thing in an Anabaptist context is most of us actually remember our baptisms if we were baptized. Um, Some of us were baptized as infants, some of us have not been baptized, but those of us who were baptized as an adult or as a child masquerading as an adult, in my case, nine, um, actually might have memories of that ritual. And so in this ritual of renewal, there's a chance to ponder those commitments that you made at that time to step into a renewal of those commitments, or maybe even to reflect on how you understand or embody them differently now than you did even then. I sometimes joke about my nine-year-old adult baptism. And I knew everything I could have possibly known at nine. And at 16, I would have known everything I could have possibly known at 16. And at 24, I would have... How do you understand and embody that commitment differently now than you did at whatever age it was that you made it for the first time? I was excited to have Kevin introduce this, having just been baptized in the last year, and I know that he had planned um, to make this as invitational as possible, even for those of you um, who have not been baptized. Um, So I'll say a word on that soon. But I'm going to say that also after the service, I would invite you, we have water here on the altar. Um, We also, I didn't realize we were going to have this, but we also have the River Jordan down there on the floor. (laughs) And then we also have a couple of bowls of water in the back. And so if this is something that you might step into, even if it's uncomfortable, but I invite you to just dip your fingers in the water. Take a moment at the end of the service. Maybe you want to touch the water to your forehead or to your heart or to your hand or maybe just feel it with your fingers. And as you do that, as you do a thing and not just say a thing, um, open yourself to what might be there in the touch of the water. One of the things that you may do is you may hold an intention that you are carrying for the year ahead or... um, for a transition that you're anticipating, whether big or small, a threshold in your life. You may hold that in your mind or in your heart as you touch the water. You may hold the words of our baptism renewal commitments. Hold that wondering for yourself. How is this commitment to walk in the way of Jesus, to live as a transformed person? How is this being embodied in my life in new ways, and how do I want to commit myself to this way? So you could hold one of those things as you touch the water. As we engage as our life as a people constantly transformed, may we be blessed in our rituals, in our crossing thresholds, and in our renewing commitments. Amen. In a Mennonite context in an Anabaptist context where we practice believers' baptism. Our baptism is an outward sign of an internal change. It's a public covenanting with God and with God's people uh, as a symbol of our internal desire to follow in the way of Jesus. And so this renewal of baptism commitment is obviously um, 
uh, for those who have been baptized, very specifically for those who have been baptized. But not all of you have. Some of you and some of you who have not been baptized may already know that's something you want, that you're ready for. Uh, Some of you may know that it's somewhere down the road on the horizon. And some of you may just have a curiosity or a wondering. Some of you may not, and that's okay too. But I will invite you, if you are not baptized, um, if you'd like, you can just listen to the words of the voices spoken, uh, the, the, the voices speaking the words around you, and you can participate in that way, participate by bearing witness to what is happening in this room. Or you may choose to join your voice to this community and speak the words aloud. You can speak them aloud as an intention, as a hope, as a commitment, or even as a wondering. So let us pray together, folks. The words of this prayer of commitment are printed in your bulletin, and I will start us off and invite you to join me as you wish with the bold print. They did not get printed. That is too bad. Okay, then this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a repeat after me, for those of you who would like to participate. I'll begin, and then when it's uh, time to repeat, I'll just indicate with um, my hands, and you're welcome to join in if you like. God of covenant, when Jesus came up from the waters of baptism, you claimed him as your beloved one. Through Jesus, you claim everyone who comes to you as your beloved. And this is going to be our part. We confess our faith in you today as we did at baptism. We confess our faith in you today as we did at baptism. By your spirit, I will continue in your teaching and fellowship. By your spirit, I will continue in your teaching and fellowship. The breaking of bread and prayer. The breaking of bread and prayer. By your spirit, I will live without giving in to violence. By your spirit, I will live without giving in to violence. I will resist what is evil and take risks for what is good. I will resist what is evil and take risks for what is good. By your spirit, I will be ready to give the reason for the hope that I have. By your spirit, I will be ready to give the reason for the hope I have with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Strengthen us, God of love, according to your promise at baptism. Strengthen us, God of love, according to your promise at baptism. Bind us together as your covenant people through Christ Jesus. Bind us together as your covenant people through Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us sing number 448 in your blue hymnals, Awake, Awake, Fling Off the Night.